So by way of recap, we looked at the at the beginning of chapter 13. We looked at the first six verses a couple weeks ago, and, and we looked at several things. But I want to start with a pattern that comes out as you study the New Testament, as you look at uh, in the Gospels and then also in the book of Acts, but especially in the letters, there's a bit of a pattern. It's where the writer, and, it, and it, it's true here in Hebrews as well, the writer starts out and he does a great deal of groundwork laying out doctrine, laying out biblical truths about what it is to be a Christian, what it is to not walk with Christ, in this case in Judaism and all of that. And and then as you progress through the letter, he gets to a certain point after he's told us and told folks what God has to say. And as people become grounded in him and his word, then near the end of their writings, they would begin to exhort the people to put into practice the things that they had learned, that they had been looking at in these letters. And here in Hebrews, we looked at a huge section from uh, chapter 1 on through chapter 12, where there was just a great deal of instruction. We've shifted gears, and we looked at chapter uh, uh, 13 this morning and a couple of weeks ago, and where the writer is now in a pastoral way, with a pastor's heart, he's exhorting these people to apply the things that they've been learning. And that's a good thing for us as well, because if we don't apply God's word to our lives, this just becomes a book report. This becomes something that we come and we fill our heads with Bible knowledge, and then we go home and our lives are not impacted. We're not changed. We're not conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8.28 is very clear that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. Very often we stop there, but if you don't go into Romans 8.29, you don't get the full message because 8.29 tells us what that purpose is. This is for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work that we come here and yield ourselves to. As I was praying a moment ago, Lord, come by your Holy Spirit, instruct us, give us the ability to apply your word to our lives. That's what the writer's doing here in Hebrews. Uh, it's the end of this letter. This is the last chapter. We're not going to finish it this morning. Probably go through verses 7 through 14. Maybe. <laughs> I told the guys, we're not going to have a last song this morning. I have a lot of notes. Um, but as we look, it, I, I want to just back up a little bit. In, in verse 1, we saw that he, again, he exhorts these people. We talked about, before I get into that, we talked about what an imperative is. When he says, let us... That's not saying, like, let's go to lunch, a soft kind of a command. No, it's a command. This is an imperative something. He says, I don't want to look and see that maybe you're doing this. He says, this is what ought to be evidenced in your life if you're a child of God. And so when he's saying uh, these things, he's giving instruction for what our lives should look like. There's, there are imperatives that he gives, and then out of that come indicatives. And I don't want to get into a big English lesson and all of that, but an indicative is, for instance, the, the defendant laughed at the judge in the courtroom. It was indicative that his heart was, had no remorse. 
So there are things that happen that our behaviors will indicate where our hearts are. So these things, they start out as imperatives. They start out as things that we need to take to heart and that we need to apply to our lives. And as we do, when Jesus said, when they look into that church, when they look in and they see you, they should see the love that you have for one another. Why? Because it's indicative of my presence in their lives. And that's what we're looking at. These exhortations are not empty. They're not school book. They're not, you know, just something that we could have an, 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 a, a mental knowledge of, but these are things that by design, the spirit of God wants to apply in our lives. And so in verse one, he said, keep on loving each other as brothers. Why? <laughs> because what good is it? Is it if we're taught to love one another and we don't? And folks, I have I mentioned before, I have seen churches, entire congregations go sideways because this is not in place. And, 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 and yes, we're taught to love one another. And, and that should be, the, it, the Bible tells us it's easy to love those that are lovable. This includes the people that maybe aren't so lovable. And he says, have brotherly love. Phileo was the word. And so we looked at that. In verse 2, we looked at what it is to extend hospitality to strangers. And the word there is philozenia, and what it means is stranger love. Not strange love, but stranger <laughs> love. So it, it, what, he's, what he's doing is he's saying, look, have a love for your brothers, your sisters in the body, but love those that you don't know. Have a love for strangers. And that's important. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. We looked at that. We looked at, at where he, 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 the people that he poked in the chest were the religious guys. The people that he got in their face were the ones that thought they had it wired and didn't. Why? Because they were devoid of love. They were devoid of love for God and they were devoid of the love of God towards others. They had distilled the things of God down to a list of rules. And we're going to talk about that as we go. So, uh, the, what he says is extend hospitality to strangers. Remember those that you don't know. Verse three, he says, remember those who've been mistreated and thrown into prison. Those people that in context here, there was persecution. It was on the rise in the first century. And these people would know others who had been thrown into prison for their faith. So he says, remember those who've been thrown into prison in, in verse three. Verse four, we looked at marriage. Let marriage as God has ordained and established be held in honor. I shared with you about uh, my friend Jerry many, many, many years ago that had been struggling because he had lust for his wife. And I'm going, wait a minute, you need to look at this. The marriage bed is undefiled. And that's what we looked at here. All right, you guys, stop it. <laughs> anyway, we looked at that. And then... What he's saying is be content in marriage. Verse 5, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money. We looked at that. And again, he's using this word, the, the root word philea, which is love. And he's saying, love your brothers, love strangers, don't love money. Okay? And so he's saying, be content with what you have. Learn contentment over covetousness because it's easy for us to want what we don't have. That's our old nature. And Christians should be a people who are set apart, who are content in whatever circumstances they're in. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, look, I've learned the secret of whether I'm abased or I abound. Why? Because his trust was not in his money, which is easy for us to do, especially when we 
don't have it, it becomes a real stress. His trust was in the Lord. Knowing that God said, I'll supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. He does say that. Do we believe it? That's the point. So without belaboring that anymore, in verse 5, he reminds them of one of the greatest promises of God in all of the scripture when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm going I'm to camp on that for just a moment because I, there are some things about that that I didn't have time to go into last week. But as we uh, revisit this this morning, this is a promise that God has made to anyone who is called his child. I will never leave you or forsake you. There are five, in the Greek, this is a very hard uh, verse to translate from Greek into English because it works in the Greek. It doesn't work well in the English at all because there are five negatives in this statement. We can't we can't manage that in English. It's hard for us to to parse and to put in, in, into words in English. But uh, the negatives have a fivefold force and they're emphatic. It's very emphatic. He's, it literally it says, "I will not, I will not leave you. I will never." No, never forsake you. So it's the closest that I can come to putting that into words. What he's saying is if you're a child of God, you never, ever, ever have to be afraid that I'm going to leave you or that I'm going to forsake you. That's great news. I don't know about you, but I understand that were it not for the grace of God on my life, that the the, the basis of his judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. Things I've thought, things I've said, things I've done. And he says, no, you're my child. I will remember your sin no more as far as the east is from the west. Glad it's not from the north to the south, because they do meet. The others don't. But the point is, he says, that's my heart. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Because it's not dependent upon you and your performance. It's dependent upon my son and what he did at the cross. Period. End of story. So if you worry about your salvation and you are a child of God, you identify as a child of God, stop it. Know that he has you firmly in his grip. So we'll start the text for this morning now that we're... into it a bit. We're going to look at verses 7 through 14, and I'm just going to work through them. Uh, As we look at this, I have outside the gate on the title slide, that's a picture. It's not a... Yeah, it is. (laughs) That's a picture of the Damascus Gate, uh, looking up at the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. I'll get into where this gate is located as we go along this morning. It's a significant gate. Uh, the, The city of Jerusalem is a walled city. Uh, As in most of the cities in the ancient world, they built big walls to protect them from invading forces. And Israel had a lot, Jerusalem had a lot of people invade her over the centuries. So this is present day, the Damascus Gate. It looks similar in times past, but it plays a significant role. Uh, As we look at this passage, what it means outside the gate, outside the city. So in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, uh, the writer says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So there are two things here. Now, number one, he says, remember those. He doesn't say revere those. If you want to get me to tear my shirt, call me reverend. (laughs) Because I'm not. I love the Lord and I love what he's called me to do, but he is the only one who is reverend. Uh, so he says, remember those. 
Uh, and, and when it says rule over you, it's not talking about some harsh ruler. Don't connect that. What it means is those who lead. And it's a, it's a reference to leaders in the local assembly. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. But he says two things. He says it's about what they say and about what they do. And, and you are under no obligation to respect or to remember those who, quote, rule over you if they're not giving you God's word and they're not living in a way that is conducive to the New Testament church. He's saying both. They're legitimized by their faithfulness to the word of God and to godly conduct. Those two go hand in hand. I remember, uh, I can't remember, Ron, I'm sure you know his name, a faith teacher back in the 80s. That he'd get up and he'd be drinking martinis and smoking cigars and... Gene Scott. Gene Scott. Yeah. And and it's like, I would look at this guy and it's like, he did everything he could to flaunt and he called that freedom. I called it foolishness. But the point is, is that there's integrity in spiritual leadership. Does sinlessness? No. But there is integrity. And there's integrity between giving people the word of God, not garbage, and we'll talk about that as we go because he covers that. But there's integrity in giving people the word of God and in living a life that's conducive to supporting that message. So they're legitimized that way. A good example is Paul, the apostle, planted churches all over the Roman Empire back in his day, part of what he was commissioned to do. And so what he would do is he would go into a town, he would begin to preach the gospel, a church would get born, birthed uh, out of that, and then he would, as the church grew, and they were house churches, they weren't like this, a building, they were house churches, and what he would do is he would begin to raise up men in that church to lead, because at some point he would be called away. So he would look for qualified men, he would look for men who were able to teach, he would look for men who were shepherds' hearts, who had the ability to care for the flock. Because what did Jesus tell Peter there at the Sea of Galilee when he restored Peter after he denied him? He said, tend my flock and feed my flock. Two things, tend and feed. It's sort of like what the writer's saying here. It's about what you say and about what you do. And so what he's doing there is to shepherd the flock, is to tend it. That's to protect it. That's to, 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 and then to feed is to bring the flock to good food. Like with our, our Old Testament uh, history deal, I don't have to be the one that's teaching, but I want to be sure as the pastor of the church here that the people that are teaching are qualified to teach, that they're apt to teach and that they're prone to teach good stuff, that they're going to teach things in context and that there is a call of God upon their lives to do that. So what Paul would do is he'd find these guys and then and what he's, and he would ordain them to oversee the church when he left to go to the next place. Uh, and what the writer is saying here is he's recognizing these leaders who faithfully teach you the word of God and follow them. He's, that's what he's saying here in, in Hebrews. He says, follow them. Because just as much as the church needs godly leaders, it needs godly followers. In Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> I'm going to read a lengthy passage here uh, that talks about Paul. He's with the elders of a church at Ephesus. Now, he got to a town called Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. He had the Ephesian elders come down and meet him there because he knew that this was the last time that he would ever see them. 
It's a very moving scene. Uh, there are a lot of tears going on as he gets down to pray with these guys. Uh, wonderful, wonderful passage in Acts chapter 20. I'm, I'm going to go through about six verses here. In, in verse 25, he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This is it. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. That's an interesting statement. Why? Because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What the writer's saying here is, is, is remember those people that God has raised up to give you the word of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is it's not, I didn't come here for the last three years. I didn't come here and just share a bunch of my ideas and opinions with you. I have not shunned to give you the full counsel of the Word of God. I was talking with someone before we got started that, uh, gentleman's first time here and saying, you know, I, I, I listened to a radio station that has a lot of Calvary chapels and, and I love that you guys teach the Bible and, and verse by verse and, and, uh, I, I, I tell you what, I am just so blessed that that's what we do here. Uh, we're not, I'm not here to give you a bunch of religious hype. I'm not here to tell you that if you follow these rules and God's happy with you, he's going to pat you on the head. We're going to go through the Bible. We're going to go through verse by verse. We're going to take the easy stuff. We're going to take the hard stuff and everything in between. Because that's where the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and drives it into the hearts of the people of God. That's our recipe. And it's not something that we made up. As we've looked at this book of Hebrews over the last months and months now, we've seen that the writer over and over and over again does Bible studies with the people he's writing to. That's why there is so much Old Testament quoted in this book. Because he sees the value of the Word of God being taught in context to the people of God that they could put it on and wear it and that their lives would be profoundly impacted by it as they walk with the Lord. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's the same. So uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about these different offices that men have been and women have been raised up to in positions of authority. Uh, he speaks about apostles, prophets, evangelists. Then he goes into something that I believe that is the Bible indicates that men are called to be pastors. I believe that women have great value. I don't believe that the Bible says in First Timothy. I'm not going to make a study out of that. But the point is, is that women are raised up to positions of leadership, not to be the senior pastor of a church, but to valuable, valid places of ministry. And, and I totally believe that and respect that. However, I don't believe that a woman is called to be the senior pastor of a church because the Bible says that they shouldn't be teaching and they shouldn't be in places of authority over the flock as teaching men, what I'm talking about. 
Didn't even mean to go into all that. That's free, by the way. No charge. (laughs) But he talks about this calling of pastor-teacher, those whose responsibility is to equip the saints to grow spiritually. Now, Now, the writer's emphasis here is on the priority that they had to teach the Word of God. Uh, and remember, in the Old Testament, or in the in the first century, they didn't have the New Testament. It was kind of like being written, as we see. I mean, we're reading about these people that these books and these letters and so on would become, be assembled into the canon of the Scripture. So they didn't have uh, the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. And, and at that, a lot of times, that was kept from the people. Uh, very often, that's what people have done to control others, is to hold back the Word of God. I mean, it happened all through the, the Middle Ages as well. The point is, these guys had to rely on the Holy Spirit. They had to rely on the knowledge that they had and the, the Spirit of God to give them the ability to apply that knowledge of God's Word. Again, it was still about God's Word absolutely about God's word and not about anything else. Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. So as Paul would be raising these people up, as these people were being called to pastor these churches as these elders, and it talks about a plurality of elders there um, being equipped to lead the the people. They were people that were very heavily reliant upon the the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be able to get the word of God across. Again, no different now. We have the canon of Scripture. We have the, the written word for us, and we rely on that because the way that God instructs us is by His Spirit through His Word alone. He does speak to us, but He will not speak to us in a manner that's inconsistent with His written Word. And and we do well to remember that because there's a lot of hype out there. There's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of spiritual junk food. I like Hostess Twinkies. You guys like Twinkies? That's not my notes either. But you want to know something? I have blood sugar issues. They taste good, but they're going to cause me problems. And so my point is, is that there's a lot of really attractive looking stuff out there. There are things out there that people will serve up to you and tell you this is from God. Don't you believe it unless it's here. It amounts to spiritual Twinkies, junk food. It, 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 it might be good on the, on the front end, but it won't lead you anywhere but into trouble, into poor spiritual health if you buy into it. And there's a lot of it going on out there. Just got a hold of the second video, American Gospel. I don't know if you folks have heard of it. Um, three hour long video. Uh, it talks a lot about what's going on in the quote church. I use the term loosely. Uh, out there and, and a lot of the fallacy, a lot of the error, a lot of the stuff that's being pushed forward as being what defines a person as being a Christian. There's some horrible stuff out there and you need to know it. You need to be aware of it and you need to be in a place where you can throw off the error and take in the truth. How do you do that? By getting to know the word of God. That's it. 
So the point that the writer is saying, he's saying, remember those leaders who were able to help you grow spiritually, especially through the teaching of the word of God, and follow them. Uh, and he adds, considering the outcome of their way of life. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said this, he said, what is it about them that made a difference in your life? And so when I when we talk about following these guys, do we follow men? Well, yeah, we have. I have some heroes in my life, men of God, who across the board have had a profound impact on me and on my life and on my relationship with Christ because they represented God well. Uh, I, I know... Uh, a guy by the name of Rick Boya. I, I, you may or may not have heard of him. If you're in Ron's home fellowship, you know who he is because Ron uses his stuff. But he was a pastor of a church in Southern Oregon where I got saved, where I came out of Mormonism and came into Christ. And, and he's the guy that baptized me. One of the best Bible teachers I've ever known. And a solid, godly man. He had a profound impact on me. Still does. Uh, Tom Fuller, the founding pastor of this church, was ordained in the same church. There's a coincidence there in the same church that, that I came out of as well. So there's him, a guy by the name of Chuck Smith. Many have heard of him. Uh, the guy that founded or was the head, the lead of the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, going all the way back to the 60s when all these hippies were wandering around kind of aimlessly and, you know, they were looking for... <laughs> yeah, Scott. Uh, <laughs> I'm not calling anybody out by name. <laughs> but they were looking for two things. They were looking for love, remember? The, you know, and they were looking for peace. The Vietnam War was kicking into high gear and stuff. And they knew that they wanted... And Chuck's wife went to him. Kay, she went to him. She said... We know how to show them where to find that. They want love and peace. And where else but other than the gospel of Jesus Christ can they find that? And that was the genesis of a movement that has gone worldwide and that many thousands and thousands of people have benefited from since. And that was the birth of the whole notion that we don't have to come up with fancy sermons Sunday after Sunday, topical messages to titillate you and to tickle your ears. All we have to do is be faithful to this, to the word of God. And as we do that, guess what? We grow. I grow. You know what? I feel like I sometimes I feel like I rip you guys off because I take in so much more as I prepare for these studies than I could possibly speak in an hour. And yet it's just such a blessing to know that this is God's church. It's his word going forth and, and that you are his. I love the way that he set it up. It makes it easy for us to come together as a body. Not a lot of pretense here. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for, forever. Have you ever thought about this? Everything around us is changing constantly. I look at our culture and where it's gone in the last few years. Uh, unfortunately, you know, God's standard is fixed. He is unchanging. He does not change. The Bible word, the, the theological word is he is immutable. He cannot change. If he were changing, he would not be God. He doesn't change. His standard never changes. He doesn't set a standard. He is the standard. He's the embodiment of righteousness. He's the embodiment of love. He's the embodiment of wrath. Uh, I could just rabbit trail big time on that, but I got a, <laughs> got a lot I want to go through still. The point is he doesn't change. Everything around us does. Man's standard 
by contrast, is not fixed. Man's standard changes all the time. Only problem is with man is whenever it changes, it's lower. I mean, you look at our culture, you look at our culture compared to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, lower, lower, lower. I think about our grandkids and I think fearfully at times, like, what are they inheriting? Lower. The point is, and the writer wants to make this really clear to these guys, God doesn't change. We change jobs. We change schools. I know a lot of people that change their minds a lot. <laughs> but God doesn't. I was talking to a guy on Friday, an associate. Uh, I was in corporate management for a while, and, and this guy was a, a vice president of the same company in, a, in Palm Springs. And uh, he called on Friday, and, and I was saying, well, so, Bill, now that you're down in you know, South Carolina, wherever he is, uh, you know, you ever hear what's going on in Palm Springs? And he goes, yeah, he says, it was kind of nice the first couple times I went out there, but it's changed. And I thought, yeah, I know what that's like. I know I, when I was in high school, I moved away from my, spent my senior year up in, uh, Fife, Washington. You know, I've shared with you guys, got three part-time jobs in my own house and put myself through high school. And, and when I got out, I went back to my hometown in Southern California. And guess what? It had changed. My old friends weren't around. Yeah, I mean, I've stayed there for a year before I got out of there and went back to Washington. But the point is, things change. It is so comforting. It's so reassuring. It's a powerful truth to know that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Take that to heart. Know that He is reliable. He's not going to tell you one thing today and tell you something else tomorrow. That's what people do. That's not what God does. He's not flippant. His love doesn't grow cold. His truth endures forever. His nature and his character can't change. They never change. He doesn't say anything and not back it up. Watch out, by contrast, watch out for the new thing. There are a lot of people out there that are changing or endeavoring to change what God has said. And it's garbage. Throw it off. Uh, I've shared with you guys before, you ever get into a fellowship where people start to distort and to pervert this? Run. Don't put up with it. Ensure your own spiritual well-being. Don't take in the error. Pay attention to this and you'll know when the error comes. Verse 9, he says, Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. That's kind of a mouthful. I shared last night, we, we had a family function. It was my mother-in-law's birthday, and, and we were over in McMinnville. And, and after we had played cards for a while, I was just kind of sitting there, and I was thinking about the message this morning. <laughs> and... My sister-in-law, uh, I said, I'm kind of in the zone right now. And she's like, what? And I said, well, I'm just thinking about one line from the message tomorrow. And she said, what's that? <laughs> and I said, polka dot periphery. And she did what you're doing. She went, huh? What? <laughs> she, I said, yeah, it's in the Bible. She said, what? <laughs> and it is. But let me explain. In this verse, when he says, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines, He's saying stop. Literally, it's not don't. It's stop being carried away by various and strange doctrines. The word carried away is the word peripheral. 
Okay, it's where we get the word periphery. What it means is, and to use modern vernacular, don't get out in the weeds. If you want to get out in the weeds doctrinally, it's you're going to suffer. So he's saying, don't get out in the weeds with these varied and strange doctrines. Varied, the word varied there is, is harder for me to pronounce, poikolos. It's where we get the word polka dot from. What it means is variegated. Have you ever heard the word variegated? Variegated color, it means multicolored. It's a, that's where we get that word. It, it, what it means is don't get off in the weeds with all of these multicolored, with all of these multifaceted, with all these weird, strange, odd doctrines. Don't get carried off with those. Stay centered. And that's what he's talking about. That's what the polka dot periphery is about. Stay away from that. And stay with good doctrine. Stay with the truth of God's word. Stay centered. That's his exhortation. These are exhortations. Again, these are things that he's saying, I've been talking to you about the doctrinal stuff all along. Now this is what I want you to do. Stay away from that. And you'll do well. The God of this world, one of his favorite, one of Satan's favorite tools, absolute favorite, is to carry Christians away from sound doctrine. If he can get you off onto believing some fringe thing and get you to start championing, championing that as a cause, then he's got you pretty well compromised. Let the main thing be the main thing. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, again, a great influence on my life. One of the things he'd say is major in the majors. Don't major in the minors. Don't get out in the weeds. Charismatic speakers sound good. And very often they'll appeal to your emotions and you'll feel good. That's the hook. That's what will cause you to begin to believe a lie. And it will take you off course. The point is, strange doctrines stand against God's teachings regarding grace. That's what he's saying here. The gospel is not about ceremony. It's not about ritual. It's not about religious rites. It's not about food. People say, well, you know, that's against my religion. I remember one time I was with a Mormon guy. He st- we stopped at a store for him to get some mints. And there was a guy that was panhandling outside the store. And, and the guy said, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you, man. Do you have a dollar? I want to buy a bottle of wine. And, and, and the, my Mormon friend said, well, that's against my religion. And I, I decided not to even go there with him, but the point is, yeah, Romans 14, sorry. Um, he said, well, I told him it's against my religion. And I, he said, well, Jesus drank wine. And and I, I told, when he got back to the car, I said, yeah, you know what I always said? Is, yeah, but he didn't have to borrow a dollar to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> the point is, <laughs> these strange doctrines will take you off track. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, there's a really good passage that talks about this, what the writer's saying here, backed up, corroborated by another passage of scripture, which is a really good practice to be in. Where else does this talked about in the Bible? And, and where Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church at Colossae, there goes that Oregon nose thing. Um, In chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, he says this. He says, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. By the way, did you know that Sunday is not the new Sabbath? 
If you were here in our study in Hebrews 4, we read that he says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't fail to enter his rest. We're not called to a Sabbath day, folks. We're called to a Sabbath life. That's good news. Anyway, he says, Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward. The New American Standard renders it defraud you of your prize. I like that. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. People that promote false doctrine, usually that's an earmark. They think they've got a corner on it, and they're going to make sure that you understand their point of view, which usually amounts to an opinion, and those don't count. Verse 19, he says, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligament, ligaments, grows with an increase that's from God. It's not from man. And he's making a clear distinction there. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though you're living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? The whole point that the writer is making here in Hebrews is it's not about law. It's not about old covenant. It's not about Judaism for these people that were tempted to go back. He's saying it's about freedom in Christ. It's not about regulations. These regulations that you subject yourselves to, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, or in the case in Hebrews here, about foods, people getting hung up about foods. Judaism was all about the dietary laws, and that's what the writer's talking about here. See, and don't get hung up on that. Realize I don't have my microphone. It's working good, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Um, he says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. The point In chapter 2, verse 23 of Colossians, he says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of zero value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there's no value in rule-keeping. Does that mean you go out and live wantonly for yourself? No, of course not. He says in Romans, How shall somebody who has died to sin still live in it? That's not what's being put forth. But what he's saying is our hearts need to be established by grace. And that as our hearts are established in grace, as we love him and we love others, we want to live lives that are, yes, obedient in the sense that we know what God wants of us. We know what he has called us to. We know where the edge of the yard is and we don't foolishly try to live as close to the edge as we can without stepping over. Because guess what? If you want to do that, you're going to step over at some point. But we want to stay aligned. We want to stay majoring in the majors. We want to stay with our hearts pure towards him and towards others. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The point here is that we're established by an understanding and an appropriation of God's undeserved approval of us and not by an assumed approval gained through keeping a list of rules. That's what the writer's putting forth. Verse 10, 
We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. I gotta put this on. It's been bugging me since I realized I've had Excuse me. There. How's that, guys? I got the sound, guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, now. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Interesting verse. The first century Christians, they had been labeled as illegitimate by the Jews because they didn't participate in the temple ordinances and all of that any longer. They didn't go to temple. They they didn't go to synagogue. They didn't go and participate in the national feasts and do the animal sacrifices and all of that. They had been declared, you know, you guys are, you're illegitimate. You don't, you're outside. You're not continuing with the Levitical system. What the writer's saying here, he says, we have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle, they don't have any right to eat. In other words, we are not illegitimate. They actually are the ones who have become illegitimate because Judaism is done, and now it's Christ. It's not about the altar in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, there was the altar where they slaughtered the animal. It's not about that because now the altar for Christians has become the cross. That's the place of sacrifice. That's what the altar was. It was where the blood was spilled for the sins of the people. He's contrasting between those who come to God through the Lord Jesus and those who come to him on the basis of works. It's another comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Interesting, he's making a reference to Leviticus chapter 16 here. And in Leviticus 16, it's all about the Day of Atonement. And what would happen was the high priest would come, he would take and slaughter a bull or a goat on the altar, but he was forbidden from burning that animal on the altar because it was take it was to be taken outside the camp and burned there. The hide, the flesh, the whole works. It was to be taken out. It was a picture, it was a type for the suffering of Christ. It was, it was God's method for dealing with sin in the old covenant that that altar was where the blood of the sacrifice came from and the blood would be taken into the Holy of Holies on that one day a year, a sacrifice and sprinkled for the sins of the people there on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and before it. And, and, and that was what happened with the blood, but the body went outside. So, I came across something that Charles Spurgeon wrote that I thought was really good. I'm going to read it to you uh, about this. He says, you know that when the high priest offered the sin offering because it typified sin, it was so obnoxious to God that it might not be burned upon the great altar, but it was always burned outside the camp to show God's detestation of sin and his determination not only to put it away from himself, but to put it away from his people. Now, when our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to be our sin offering, to fulfill that type, it behooved him also to put outside, to be put outside the camp. And it is very interesting to note how remarkably providence provided for the fulfillment of this type. And providentially, the Romans had set up that when someone was crucified, they were crucified outside the city. 
Who lives there outside the gate? Spurgeon writes, Who are the poor people that are put away from kith and kin, friends and family, and who cannot go up to the sanctuary of the Lord to present their offerings unto him or to join in the songs of praise unto his holy name? The answer to your inquiry would have been, the people out there are lepers and others who are unclean. They're the people that were outside of the gates of the city. If you were, if you were sick, if you were a leper, you had to go outside the city. And when somebody walked by you, you had to, you had to chant unclean, unclean, unclean to announce to them not to get too close to you because that was a very nasty illness to which there was no cure. He was a picture of you and me, my brethren, in our natural state. And if the Holy Spirit has quickened us and made us to know our ruined condition, we shall feel that the leper's cry does well become our unholy lips. Therefore, verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Spurgeon continues in this. He says, leper, leper, be of good cheer. Christ died outside the camp that you might be sanctified or cleansed through his blood. Never again would it be on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. Because as I mentioned, the altar is now the cross. Isn't that good? A couple of slides here about outside the gate and how this was fulfilled, literally fulfilled. Uh, This first slide, you see there are two red dots in it. And it says crucifixion and burial next to each one. The the one on the top of the slide is, uh, that's called Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb and Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, When I've gone to Israel, been to both of these places, I particularly believe that this is the place, but I might be wrong. There are two places that are, they're not hotly contended over, but they are contended over for where Jesus' crucifixion and, and, and uh, entombment was. And the first is the, the Gordon's Calvary, the, the garden tomb there at the north. I've shown photos before. I, I decided not to put them up because I want to move through here. But the point there is that you can stand there at the edge of this garden and look at the hillside, and there is a very clear impression of a skull. Still. Golgotha means place of the skull. And it's over a bus parking lot, uh, which is interesting. The other place is where it says crucifixion and burial, down in the center of the slide, is the place, it's, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's traditionally where uh, people make pilgrimages. It's a very garish now. I'm not talking about then, but now it's it's very garish and and it's just full of religious stuff. I mean, it's just over the top. Uh, this processional comes through with these guys ordering everybody out of the way because the important religious guys were coming through. It was just weird, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't the place, and it may well have been. One or the other of these places is probably where Jesus was crucified. The point I want to make here is you see at the top of the slide, it says third wall. There is some conjecture about when the third wall around the city was built. There are many people that say it was built after the crucifixion. There are many that say it was built before the crucifixion. If that was the case, then Jesus would have been taken outside of the gate, outside of the walls of the city either way. 
But if you see the road there right next to that red dot on the top, that's a road to Damascus. That's where the Damascus gate is. And if that's the case, then he would have been taken right outside the gate. Now, if it's the other place, you see where it says second wall. And the second wall would have been in place long before the third. And if it was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, if that's the place, it would have been just outside the gate as well. Either way, this scripture fits. Jesus was taken outside of the city, prophetically fulfilling that which was prefigured in the Old Testament. Second uh, slide here. This is the, the Damascus Gate looking straight on. Um, it's a it's a beautiful, majestic looking gate. This would be taken from just off of the Garden Tomb. Uh, beautiful, beautiful area. Again, it's been 2,000 years, folks, so who really knows? We'll know when we get there, I guess, because uh, all of that stuff will be revealed. But for now, we look at this, and either place fits that Jesus was crucified outside the gate. We have an altar that's outside the gate. That's the point. The writer is saying, look, it's not about Judaism anymore. He has been hammering that home for now 13 chapters. And there were chapters then for this whole letter. He's been hammering it home in a number of different ways. And this is just another way for him to say, look, it's not about the altar. It's not about the temple. It's not about the sacrifices of bulls and goats. It's about the blood of Jesus outside the gate. The altar is the cross. Verse 13, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The original readers of this letter had grown up under Judaism, and it was a way of life to them. By the first century, Judaism had been reduced. It was traditions, laws, rites, rituals, and they were suited to the leaders of the day. And if you weren't part of the spiritual elite, they literally looked down on you. They would tell the people, you must keep all of these regulations in order to be righteous before God. Totally missing the point that man's heart, if man's heart is not impacted, if man's heart is not changed, there is no getting to God. And that had to be on the basis of grace because you can't be good enough. You can't do enough right things. You can't obey enough rules to get into God's favor on that basis. He's calling them to separate themselves from the religious camp of Judaism. That's what, that's the point of the scripture to come away once and for all. Get out of the city. Get away from Judaism. Get away from its practices and identify with the Lord Jesus permanently. Why? Because Judaism is a dead religion. It had been replaced. We've looked at that uh, in a number of ways in this letter. Christians were a remnant, a small minority. The vast majority of the Jews had rejected Christ. And he's saying, you know what? So what? If there's all of that going on, but these people were having a tough time. And there are times where our faith is stretched and we go through things as well. The language for these people would have been absolutely clear to them that the Jewish religion was no longer a way to approach God. It had to be on the basis of his grace. When Jesus was on the cross, when he gave up his spirit, we're told that the veil of the temple was torn. 
opening the way to direct access to God. Uh, and, and, and yeah, they sewed it back up and they used the temple for a few years until the Romans destroyed it. But that was no longer the way to God. It was no longer the means through which you approach God, through the blood of the sacrifices. There's one sacrifice once for all outside the city. As we apply this, think about it. Sadly, man's religion has made it into the church today. Entire denominations and groups have elevated their traditions, their rituals, their rites, their man-made doctrines above the scriptures. Leaders of these groups have such a firm grip on the people that they control them. They control them with guilt they control them with the threat of judgment. They control them with the myth, misapplication of the word of God. This is serious stuff. This is real stuff. This is going on out there right now. And we do well to take it to heart, to stay centered in the word of God, to stay centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No more. Don't add to this. It's dangerous. People's lives are shaped by the power of the gospel. They are misshaped by the false representation of the same. When he talks about the reproach of Christ, true Christians, the true church will suffer the reproach of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you. Oh, how happy are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It should not be a shocking thing when you stand up for Christ that people don't pat you on the head and tell you how wonderful you are. It's not going to happen a lot of the time. There are times that they'll, they'll label you as being narrow-minded. Well, guess what? The gospel is narrow. Jesus talked about narrow. He said there's a narrow path. Narrow is the gate, and few are those that find it. So if somebody wants to accuse me of being narrow, I will absolutely agree with them. Yes, this is narrow. There's no other way to God than through the blood of Christ. There's no other, there's no other life that's worth living than that which he offers through the power, the agency of his Holy Spirit. This is it. And we do well to take these things to heart. Brothers and sisters, if you don't get anything else out of this morning, take it to heart that what you are doing with Christ is everything. It's everything. Verse 14, he says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. When he says here, he's talking about on earth. And what, what he's saying to them and what he's saying to us is it's far easier to bear his reproach when we walk in the reality that this life, this earth, this system, this government, all that we have around us in this physical realm is temporary. James says it's like a vapor. It's here for a moment and it's gone. And, and, and when, when the chips are down, when there's pressures on our lives, when there are things that we're going through, when we're dealing with hurts, anxieties, stresses, to walk in the reality that, or we're dealing with, with people who do not like us and our testimony of Christ, 
it's really comforting and strengthening to know and to remember this world is not our home. We're sojourners. We are passing through. And as we take that to heart, it changes the way we view life. It changes the way we handle events in our lives. And that's good news. It's not about the city that can be seen or no longer part of the earthly Jerusalem or Judaism is what he's wanting to convey to these people. The earthly Jerusalem, when this was written in about 60 to 65, somewhere in there, the earthly Jerusalem would be soon destroyed. It would be obliterated. We know that this book was, this letter was written before the temple was destroyed because the writer makes so many references there and, and there's no reference to the fact that it no longer existed. It, it, and really a lot of the impetus for this letter being written would have been gone after the Romans destroyed the temple. But what he's saying here to the people is come out, come out of the error, come out of where you are comfortable, come out of the old system of things, come out of your understanding that that was the way that you always related to God and come into fully into Christ, put it off. Don't even consider it anymore because they were so tempted to go back to that, that they were comfortable with to that physical Jerusalem, that religious system that they knew so well. They were upset. They were kind of sideways that Christ hadn't returned at this point. And the encouragement he's bringing them essentially is hang in, hang on. God has this all under control. The earthly Jerusalem would be destroyed, but the heavenly Jerusalem will be our eternal home. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, we read, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We get a city. We inherit a city that's to come, a permanent home. I want to wrap up with three things that we look at from this passage. In verse 7, when he talks about remembering those who rule over you, what he's talking about essentially are mentors. Who do you look up to? Who led you to Christ? Who's had a profound impact on you in your understanding of God's word? And essentially, that person is serving or has served as a mentor. I love, I've been so blessed to have great mentors. And, and, and God's blessed me with men, younger men in my life that he has brought in to pour into as well. And, and I love that. It's a wonderful ministry. But when he's talking about that, he's essentially saying there are mentors that God raises. That doesn't mean that they're, you know, that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that you, you you fall into some kind of idolatry with them. We we know that that's not where it's at. But what it does mean is to look to those people, those godly people who can speak the word of God to you and whose lives reflect godly conduct. The second, in verses 8 and 9, uh, I have the note here, meals. It's not about food. It's not about rules. It's about grace. Unmerited favor. That's the the working definition of grace. The grace of God is poured out. If you are his child, or if you want to step into his kingdom, 
The grace of God is poured out. It's not based on your merit. It's based on the finished work of the cross. It's not about staying away from certain things. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls that do, and all that stuff. It's about Christ. It's about His sufficiency. It's about His going to that cross for you. False teachers abound. Varied and strange teachers are out there in abundance. The polka dot periphery. Be careful. Don't let somebody trap you with a short-circuited version, a perversion of the gospel. They're out there, and they're looking to rip people off. The religious world operates on this. Again, be careful. The teachings we're exposed to must be grounded in the scripture in context. And I emphasize in context. I'll tell you what, if it's not in context, a text without a context is a con. All right? If it weren't for that principle of Bible study, I could go to you from the Psalms and prove to you that God's a bird. He says he'll take me under his wings. I think the only thing that have wings are birds, so God must be a bird, right? No, that's out of context. And, and that's very obvious and it's kind of silly, but people twist the scripture. And when they twist the scripture, the Holy Spirit is faithful to raise a red flag. Heed that red flag. Spiritual health is a result. So it's not about meals. It's not about stuff. The third uh, and last here in verses 10 through 14 is about making a stand. What the writer is doing with these people is he's saying, look, it's time for you to make a stand. He's going to be finished writing very shortly after this passage that we're in. At the end of chapter 13, this letter is closed. And he has made repeated appeals to them on the basis of doctrine, on the basis of what God's word has to say in all of these studies that he's done. He's saying, essentially, hey, guys, it's time to fish or cut bait. It's time to make a stand. Come fully out of Judaism for them. And for us, there are times where God presses us to make a stand. He says, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no fence. It's one or the other. If you're going to walk with Christ, you're going to have to make a stand, even if it means you're outside or you become an outsider. That happens. Some good advice. Let it be known early. The earlier others know, the better off you will be. You ever notice when people know you're a Christian, you walk into a room. This has happened to me a number of times. It's like I walk into a room and the wine glass goes behind the the back. It's like, oh, come on. (laughs) And, And that's another teaching. But my point is, is that it's like we should be living as though God were present, not the pastor. I'm just a guy. And that doesn't mean that we all walk around in fear, but we live in the present reality that he's present, that he's here. He, by his Holy Spirit, indwells the lives of his people. So as you make a stand, you're not making a stand on your own. He says the Lord is able to make a stand in the book of Romans. 
True disciples are not afraid of bearing his reproach. That's the point. People are not going to always like you. People are not going to always tell you how wonderful you are. They're not going to compliment you on what a great Christian example you are. People will be repulsed at times. It says in the Gospel of John that men love darkness more than they love light. And they push back. It happens. Jesus warned it to happen. There are many warnings in the New Testament. Don't be surprised. It doesn't mean that we're whacked in our witness. It doesn't mean that we're goofy. That doesn't mean, you know, uh, but what it does mean is that we're unafraid to speak forth from faith in conversations and in living a life that's set apart. That's what it is to live in making a stand for Christ. It doesn't, you don't have to be out there on the head, in the headlines. You don't have to be out there, you know, with a sandwich sign running up and down the street. But in the circle of people within which you have influence, stand up for Christ. Not in an obnoxious way, but in a, a tender and firm and solid way. Let them know who's king in your life. You have no idea what God's doing on the other side of that. Very often people that are the most aggressive and push back the most are the people that are closest to the kingdom of God. Uh, That's true. I'm amazed when I look back over the years, I think about people that have come to Christ, that have actually let the weight of their life down onto Christ, where some of the people that were uh, the most aggressively against prior to that. If you don't know Christ this morning, let today be the day. Give him your heart. Give him your life. If you've got issues in your life, you don't know what's going on. You can't figure out these stresses. If you are weighted down, he says in Matthew 11, come to me when you're weary, when you're heavily laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. You don't have to bear it alone. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from Hebrews this morning. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us the ability. Give us the strength. Give us the insight.